Well, good morning. I get to carry the cane now, mostly for show. Uh, every now and then I get a little unsteady or shaky, but praise the Lord. Um, the Lord has really been gracious to us in answering all of our prayers, as you all have been so kind and generous to pray for us. And um, We've just gotten uh, good news, kind of turned around or turned the corner, so to speak, in some of the recovery. And um, Lord willing, uh, the next doctor's visit that's coming up this next uh, week, if everything goes well, uh, they're going to schedule to remove my feeding tube. And uh, so uh, the Lord's just been very gracious and my family and I would like to thank you all for your generosity and your kindness to us. Um, we just can't, uh, really can't thank you all enough. Um, you know, we've been here enough now that we almost uh, considered our second home away from church, so I've already given several of you a hard time this morning. I'm not sure you know quite how to take me yet, but uh, usually uh, a grain of salt will help it go down either way. So, um, but I am thankful for the opportunity to be here with you this morning. And we're really going to look at a serious topic, and um, I'll do my best to, to get you out of here at a decent hour. Um, I, I promise I'll try not to close three or four times. But as we look at the seriousness of the condition of the church, and one of the convictions that I've really had um, in the time that the Lord has given me to spend quite a bit of quiet time with Him... I think our hours are drawing very close to an end as far as this dispensation of grace is concerned. And we're racing toward our destruction, not only as a country, but um, in a global sense. I don't think it's going to be that much longer till the Lord comes. And what is the condition of the church? What's he going to find? How is he going to find us when he comes? You know, we all have all kinds of little axioms and quips about the church. It reminds me of the story of a big um, ship going through the ocean and they passed by this small island. And a spotter looked out and he saw a hut through the binoculars and so he radioed down to the captain and the captain and a few members of the crew decided that they were going to go and investigate and see if there were any survivors on this small deserted island. And so when they got their small boat out and uh, they made it to the island. There was actually three huts there instead of the one. And so they immediately went to search for uh, the inhabitants of that island. And they found one man there. And they began to talk to him. And he relayed the story of how he uh, came to be there. And um, he said, well, uh, the captain said, well, uh, what are the huts? And he said, well, this is where I live. And he said, and that one over there is where I go to church. And finally, curiosity got the best of the captain. And he said, well, what about that one over there? And he said, oh, well, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> as, we look at the, as we look at the church today, and I've had great opportunities to witness to, to several different kinds of people, well-educated, some not so well-educated, some schooled in the church and some not schooled in the church. And the church is not held in a high regard by the world. And we say, well, that's because the Lord told us that it wouldn't. And that's true. But it's also because the church has brought some of those ill feelings on itself, walking apart from how the Lord instructed us to walk. We are to walk in wisdom among those who are without, both in the church and out of the church. Redeeming the time, knowing that time is the only resource that has been given to us that is not renewable. Now, oftentimes when we talk about resources, the first thing that comes in mind is the church. And I'm not going to talk to you about tithes and offerings. You can all breathe easy. How are we redeeming our time? And are we walking in wisdom? If you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that'll be the first place that, uh, that we look together. But I do want to take you to, to several other passages, and, and I'll read some of these out to you. 
And if you would like the outline, I'll be happy to give it to you. I have one, so it'll be first come, first serve. But if you would like the outline for further study, if you'll give me an email address or a mailing address, I'll send it to you. <clears throat> one of the places that I would like uh, for you to consider, and you really needn't turn there because I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but I want to give you um, some of the things that were brought out in, in my study and, and what is in my outline. In the book of Job, chapter 28, verses 12 through 28, questions are asked with regard to wisdom. And the question is asked twice, and then the answer is given. Sorry, I have a new constant companion. And um, <clears throat> not knowing how liberal some of the churches are today, I just thought it was a bring-your-own-bottle, and so I did. And it's clear, and no, you may not smell it. No, I'm just playing. In the 12th verse, it's asked twice, Where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? In verse 20 of Job 28, it's asked again, Whence then cometh wisdom, and where is the place of understanding? And as we move down into verse 28 of the same chapter... It says, unto man, he said, and this being the Lord, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To depart from evil is understanding. And that concept is repeated for us in, uh, in the Psalms 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all of they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Proverbs 15.23, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. There's something to be said about wisdom, true wisdom, and knowledge and truth. And I know Royce has uh, spoken on that here before because I heard the message, and so I'm going to trust that you remember the majority of the context. But true knowledge in the Scripture, true wisdom and understanding, is not gained by an academic approach to Scripture. It's not whether or not you can speak the Hebrew and Aramaic or the Greek. It's not dependent upon your knowledge and understanding of history or archaeology or even the grammar of, of the text. True wisdom and knowledge comes by revelation through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit as He leads us to a mature knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not how we approach the Scripture today. And quite honestly, that's not how the church seeks to find a shepherd, an under-shepherd. If you go back and you look at how churches today are looking for an under-shepherd, they're basically looking for a CEO, not an under-shepherd. And this question legitimately needs to be asked in our society today. Where is wisdom to be found? Where is the place of understanding? Because the fear of the Lord is not held in high regard in the church anymore. We're told that we have no need to fear the Lord. We really teach a buddy Jesus mentality. And though Jesus is the friend that sticketh closer than any earthly brethren, and he is, for all practical purposes, our brother through not only his work, but the will of the Father, we are in no wise in the Scripture given uh, the license to demean his character into just being our buddy. He is the Son of God. Now, you know, we talk historically about Solomon. And Solomon was the wisest man on the face of the earth. Why? Because the Lord gave him that wisdom. And it was earthly in its nature. You say, well, how is that possible? Because when he asked for wisdom, he didn't ask for heavenly wisdom. He asked for wisdom to rule over God's people. 
And God gave him what he asked for. And more. But it was earthly nonetheless. And we, we can prove this by Ecclesiastes because he tells us what he went out to search and to find. Now, can you think of anybody else smarter than Solomon? Probably Hawkins, maybe Sagan. Sagan knows better now. That probably sounds a little irrelevant, not irrelevant, but irreverent. But that's the truth. Man that makes the statement about not being a god, now he knows there is one. But Solomon makes the statement in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 23 through 24. All this have I proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. We've all said that at some point in time in our life, haven't we? Well, I'm going to be knowledgeable. I'm going to be smart. I'm going to be um, um, kind of a master of, of, of a subject. But Solomon also says, it was far from me. As smart as Solomon was, he said, I had declared, I will be wise. Yet it was far from me. He even goes so far in verse 24 to say, that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? So that leads us to a question with regard to wisdom, and I'm not going to clarify it for you yet out of 1 Corinthians. We're going to dig the hole a little deeper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, And this is a familiar portion of Scripture, and many of the things that I'm going to tell you, you've already heard, and I give them to you simply for your remembrance. For the preaching of the cross is to them, literally, that are perishing. That is a present participle in the Greek, and it denotes a continuous action. Those who are Perishing, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them. But to us who are being saved, there again, that is a present passive participle denoting the same thing, a continuous action. It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. This is a direct quote from the Septuagint in Isaiah 29, 14. Paul goes on to ask three questions in verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Hath God not made foolish the wisdom of this world or age? The term that's used here for made foolish is morino. Does that sound... Somewhat recognizable to you? It should. It's where we derive the term moron. Or foolish. Or a stupid person. This particular word in this form, its verb form, only occurs four times in the New Testament. Now derivatives or cognates of this word occur throughout. But this word as we see it in this text only occurs four times. The first of which is in the passage that we're reading. And so I want you to keep this in your mind as we begin looking at other portions of Scripture. God has made foolish the wisdom of this present age. Now Paul goes on to say in verse 21, and the King James in verse 21 is an unhappy translation. And so I'm going to read it for you, from, uh, to you from not another translation, but as I've been able to do some translating work on it and found it confirmed by other, well, not that I consider myself a scholar. Other scholars have said it was right, and I'm saying I agree with what they had to say. It says simply, for seeing that, rather than for after that, for seeing that, in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching 
to save them that are believing. There again is that present active participle associated with the verb believe, meaning a continuation of believing. This shows us, first off, that our salvation is not a beginning and one-time event. It is a continual process from the time that we are born from above until the time we stand in His presence. As the Lord mightily works through us to save us, not in part, but in whole, body, soul, and spirit. Now, with regard to this foolishness, with regard to the worldly wise, with regard to the scribe and the disputer of this age, it's broken down only into two classes, to the Jew and to the Greek. The Jews will require a sign. The Greeks will seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jew who seeks a sign. It is a stumbling block. And to the Greek that seeks after wisdom, it is foolishness. But unto them which are called or invited both to Jews and Greeks, and this is important. And this is where we end our thought in 1 Corinthians with regard to the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God. When we talk about true wisdom, that is heavenly wisdom, and we'll be looking at a lot of references, this is what you need to keep in mind. The wisdom that comes from above testifies of the person and perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the power of the church. It is His Word. It is the written Word which testifies of the living Word, and those two are inseparable. There's all kinds of debate of whether we can trust in the wisdom of Scripture and its validity and its inspiration and its inerrancy. And I submit to you that if the Word of God can be corrupt, then so can the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Word became flesh. And if one can be corrupted, so can the other. And if God cannot preserve the integrity of His Word then he certainly cannot preserve us. It is the power of God and it is the very thing that causes the relevancy of the church and it is the very thing that the church of this age and the completion of this dispensation is walking away from. In Luke chapter 14... Well, actually, instead of turning there, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 first. I want to continue the line of thought with regard to this um, particular word and the thought of this word under the, under the direction of wisdom. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and... We're really only going to focus on one verse here, which is the 22nd verse. No, I'm sorry, I believe it's the 20th verse. This is the second occurrence in the New Testament of the word morino. Now, the first time that we see it, it's the Lord destroying the wisdom of this age. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, we see the path and the portrait of apostates of the path that leads to apostasy and ultimately to the death or the loss of the soul of that believer at the judgment seat of Christ. There's a transition that occurs beginning in in verse 18 because the previous verses deal with a faithful believer who will ultimately be found, well, a faithful and a wise servant. Verse 18 begins the contrast. And we see the, the transition from a gnosis to an epinosis, to a basic knowledge, to a more full and right knowledge with the Lord. But in verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 22, I was right the first time. In verse 22, if you look in your Bibles, it says, professing themselves to be wise. We don't have many people doing that today, do we? 
they became fools. Now, I like what Brother Wilson used to say about it. Not many people really know the Bible, and it's not because they don't know Hebrew and Greek. It's because they can't read good English. To become one thing, you must have been something else. By the way, that became fools is morino, the second occurrence of that word in the New Testament. And once again, it has to do with wisdom, the wisdom of this age. I want to show you something in Scripture. When God judges His creation, it's always a threefold judgment. If you go and you look with Adam and Eve, the serpent and Satan, back in Genesis, you will find that each individual received a threefold judgment. It might take you a little while to look, but there are three aspects into the judgment that were pronounced upon each one. God remains consistent to His character, and there's a threefold judgment that takes place because of two actions of the apostates. If you'll look in your Bible, uh, let me find the verse. You know, that's one bad thing about having notes. You have to go back and forth. If you'll look in the 23rd verse, look what's said that they, that they did. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. Do you know that we have man worship in church? Do you realize that? Of course we do. We've had great men that the Lord has enabled to come and teach the Bible to us. And eventually their works were over, just like the passing of Moses, just like the passing of Joshua. Do you know you have individuals in the church that won't go to a church because brother so-and-so is not the one teaching there? Do you understand that that is man worship? That is replacing God with a man? We say, well, surely we wouldn't bow down and worship wood and stone. Uh, Well, yeah, we do. Oftentimes our actions betray the true intention of our heart. And we need to be careful. It is the word, not the man. The man is simply the vessel. I know I've already gone to meddling. I think I started meddling probably after the joke. (laughs) Bob, I guess it's a good thing you took up the offering before I got started, isn't it? But I'm telling you the truth. And you know, it won't be quite so funny and it won't be quite so glossy when we have to stand before the Lord who knows everything and answer for the way we've behaved having the opportunity not only to know better, but to do better. The second thing that they did is contained for us in verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. Do you know when the Hebrew children came out of Egypt and they were journeying into the Promised Land, I failed to see one time that the Lord instructed the Hebrew children to take up and change the political process of the pagans that were around them or any beautification projects that he had them pick up and do while they were on their way to Kadesh Barnea. The church has no business in trying to fix up this present age and this present world because the Lord is going to burn it up one day with fire. There will be a true global warming. I don't expect to see Gore there to tell us how it happened. But the church is consumed with the temporary and not the permanent. And for these three sins, these apostates, and they're identified as apostates, for these two sins, God sent a threefold judgment upon them. Look at what is said. In verse 24, God also gave them up to uncleanness. The word that's used here is paradidomai. And it literally means to deliver into the hands of another. They were delivered 
to uncleanness. Do you know what our motto in the church is today? Meet them where they are, just like Jesus did. Let's welcome them into the church and accept them where they are. And to some degree, there is a grain of truth in that. But at no time when the Lord was meeting with the harlots and the publicans and the sinners, did he condone their sin. He didn't partake of their sin to gain their trust or to gain their favor. He met with them with mercy and compassion and never compromised the truth or who he was. The church today is given up to uncleanness. He gave them up unto vile affections. There's the same word again. They were delivered unto the hands of another. And by the way, if you look at the context, the vile affection which they were given up to was homosexuality. Interesting here, excuse me, the Lord calls that a vile affection and an abomination in his sight. And we're ordaining them into the positions of ministry to handle the word of God. What blasphemy. And what an open display of our ignorance of the truth of God's word. I'm not just trying to step on your toes. This is the message the Lord has given me for the church as a whole. For this age, for what time we have left. And to give us an opportunity to reflect upon our lives to make sure that they're where they're supposed to be and that we're prepared to meet Him at His appearing. The last thing that is said in verse 28 is God gave them over. The same word is used there again. And he gave them over, he gave them up to a reprobate or worthless mind. In verses 29 through 31, Paul says, "...being filled with all unrighteousness, and in the subsequent listing of corruption, he lists 22 sins total." that make up the all unrighteousness. 22 in biblical numerics is a witness to disorder and chaos and rebellion. What we can see with those who are practicing these things is an open manifestation through their bodies of the inward rebellion in their heart. And they're bringing about chaos and disorder in the work of the Lord. What happened to Satan when he rebelled? Do we expect that we'll not receive the chastening of the Lord for our rebellion and our embracing of these things, bringing chaos and disorder and anarchy from his headship over us? By the way, this is the same connotation that's provided in Matthew 7 where it's said that not everyone that appears to me in that day or comes to me in that day will enter into the kingdom. And then what do they do? They say, well, Lord, Lord. By the way, that's an evocative case in the Greek, and it's direct address. Will you directly address someone you don't know? By the way, we're also told in the Scripture that no one calls him Lord, save but by the Holy Spirit. Then the next question is when those that appear to him in the kingdom in that day, how many unsaved people will be in the kingdom? These individuals were his servants, and they began to relay unto him the things that they've done. Lord, we've cast out demons in your name, and we've done many wonderful works in your name, and we've preached in your name. And you know that everything that they said was in his name, but nothing that they've done had they, were they able to say was according to his will. And therefore the Lord declares unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity in the English, but it's workers of lawlessness, rebellion, and anarchy. In the original windering of the word. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit moved these men to pen perfectly the thoughts and the intentions of the heart of our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? It fits perfectly. <clears throat> you 
If you don't mind, I'd like you to turn over in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 as we move on with our thought. And this is a familiar passage of Scripture. And it's quoted and quoted and quoted. And you know what? I've run across very few commentators and very few Christians when you actually ask them what it means can tell you what it means. But let me tell you, you can find it on just about anything in the bookstores. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, there are two examples or two things that were used uh, uh, in metaphor. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. You see that section in verse 13 that says, excuse me, have lost his savor? Do you care to guess what single word that is in the Greek? Morino. By the way, the same word is carried over for us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. And if you'll go and do a comparison both in Luke and in Matthew, you will see that this has nothing to do with common salvation. The reason that you should be able to see that is Luke gives three occurrences from the, from the very lips of our Lord... If any man come unto me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, and also his own life, he cannot be not my believer, but my disciple. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and follow after me cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whoso be, uh, he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt hath lost its savor, morino, wherewith shall it be seasoned? Both in Matthew and in Luke, the context of the question that is being asked demands a negative answer. The way that it should have been translated is salt that has lost its savor cannot be salted or prepared again, can it? Now, what is the savor? What is the savor that makes the salt worth eating, worth using to preserve that which it's put in? It's its savor, right? What is that savor? What is it? You can leave your place in Matthew and in Luke and turn over in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verses 49 through 50. The Lord gives us the answer. You know, He knows that we're children and that He's going to have to tell us the answer to His question because we don't know it. In verse 49, For everyone shall be salted with fire... That's another verse that you can carry over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, and 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and Romans chapter 14. That all has to do with the believer's work being tried by fire. And notice what he says. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with what? Salt. By the way, the, the sacrifice and being salted with salt, you can also carry over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses uh, Romans uh, 12, verses 1 and 2, where we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. And he tells us how we're able to do that by not being conformed or molded or pressed into the image of the practices and doctrines of this present age, but having our minds transformed through the Word. By the way, your minds will be transferred or transformed more and more into the image and the likeness of Christ based on how much time you spend looking in that word. <clears throat> Excuse me. But Mark goes on to say, Salt is good, but if it has lost its saltiness, wherewith shall you season it? And look at what he says. Have salt in yourselves. 
and have peace with one another. Could it be that the salt or the savor of that salt that resides within us, who is to be the salt of the earth, will be the wisdom that abides within us through the word and the Holy Spirit? As we are filled with all knowledge and understanding, as we submit to his direction, to his guidance and his, his instruction, and that we walk in the light of that wisdom, knowledge, and understanding by the power and by the grace of the Holy Spirit that others can look upon us and see that there is something miraculously different about us that they cannot see in this present age. And therefore, not only do we become the salt which can preserve, but it also stings those open sores of this present age and their iniquity before the Lord. We wind up able through his power and through his word to become that light that will dispel the darkness and illuminate not only our minds, but the minds of others to their sin and their separation from the Lord. It's not by our power that we are the salt, nor by our power that we are the light, but by his power and, re and word that abides within us as it effectually powerfully transforms us into the image and the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But if the salt, if we as his disciples become insipid, we lose that savor, we reject that wisdom and that word, and we reject and will not submit to the leadership and the instruction of the Holy Spirit, wherewith can we be prepared or salted again to be acceptable and valuable in the eyes of our Lord? And the answer is that we cannot. We cannot because we have the example in Romans and what happened? God turned them over to a reprobate mind. And once that occurred, they could not go back. Folks, that is a scary thought. When the Lord ceases to deal with us as sons and we become as the King James text indicates in Hebrews, bastards. We don't like to hear that today. I don't like to hear it, and I don't like to have to tell it to you, but it's the truth. How is this relevant in other portions of Scripture? Do you remember the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25? How many virgins were there? Ten. Oftentimes we've been told that the bride was called out of those ten, and that's not true. According to the Aramaic translation of the New Testament, referred to as the Prashetta, some of you may be familiar with it, some of you may not. According to the translation of the Prashetta, the ten virgins went out to meet the bridegroom and the bride. They were not going to the wedding, they were going to the wedding feast. By the way, ten is a number of ordinal completion, showing that which occurs in its own order, in its own lot, or in its own place. These ten virgins can also incorporate saints out of the Old Testament as well as the New. You say, well, how can you prove this? Because when we look into Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, dealing with the whole church being in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the number seven is used, showing divine spiritual completion unto perfection. You know, if I could get past the drinking part, we could probably move a little faster. <clears throat> These ten virgins were used as an example within this parable. Five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. The scripture says that all, um, all ten virgins slumbered or became sleepy and continued to sleep. The bride will be vigilant and watchful. She will not fall asleep. She will not become lax in her pursuit to know and to be joined to the bridegroom. It was at midnight that a cry was made and all of them arose and they began to try to trim their lamps. And if you've ever, uh, and, and hopefully you have because I'm, uh, I'm not, uh, not quite on up there, but I remember growing up using the old kerosene lanterns and what happened when you had... Uh, when the lamp got dry, when you weren't vigilant to make sure that the kerosene was in the lamp, what happened to the wick? 
And the wick burned, right? When it got dry, it burned. You had some ash and you had charred uh, wick and it smoked like the dickens when you tried to light it, didn't it? So how you prepared it is you did what? You trimmed the wick. You trimmed the ashes off of the wick. And I'm going to digress because you don't necessarily think that that's really important, but it is. Because it happens when the lamp is burning, right? Do you remember what the priest was to do? When he trimmed the lamps and the candelabra in the holy place, how the snuffer dishes or the dishes and the snuffers were made out of gold because when the Lord comes in that day, he's going to trade you beauty for what? Ashes. Will you have any ashes in that day? They trimmed their lamps. They were beginning to, to prepare to, to meet this bridegroom. What is said in the text is not that the, the five foolish virgins' lamps had gone out, but that they were in the process of going out. And it doesn't matter either way how you look at it. At one time, there was oil in their lamps. How many times do you have to be saved over and over and over? If you rubbed your finger in, that, in, that, uh, in their lamps, would you not have some oil on your finger? How much of the Lord does it take to save you? Such a blatant misrepresentation of the Scripture not only shows lack of scholarship, but it shows downright blasphemy in what the Lord is trying to relay in this message. This parable is not about salvation. This parable is about the preparation of disciples to meet the Lord and whether or not they'll be allowed to enter into one of the greatest events that will occur in all man's history. By the way, these virgins were... Identify These five virgins were identified as being foolish, and it is a cognate, and it's literally a moron. Do you know why they were considered a moron? Do you not think that these ten virgins had been to weddings previously? Do you think that they had never been? How many of you have been to a wedding or a wedding reception? I've been to more than my share. Do you not know how to prepare to go to a wedding? Do you not know how to prepare to go to a reception? If you don't, oftentimes the invitation will tell you whether it's formal or informal, right? All ten virgins knew how to prepare. Five of them willingly chose not to. They were satisfied and content with what they had, and they wanted nothing more. How many Christians do you know that at their moment of salvation or where they get a little bit of knowledge in the Scripture, that's all they want to know about the Lord? They're content and they want to go no further. You say, well, that's not possible. Yes, it is. I've been to several Bible conferences, and I've noticed that within the scope of the Bible conferences, people seem to be hung up on the judgment seat of Christ. If you go back and you look in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6, we're told that that is the milk of the Word, and leaving this behind, leaving these principles, these milk doctrines behind, we move on. The judgment seat of Christ is not the only attribute of our Lord. It is not the only thing that He focuses on with regard to Himself. It is considered milk. Are we moving on into the deeper things of the Lord's Word? Are we preparing that extra container of oil, or are we simply satisfied with the oil that's filling our lamps presently? It's not merely a matter of the knowledge of these things, but wisdom. The difference between wisdom and knowledge is knowledge is the accumulation of facts. Understanding is the correct connection of those facts together and wisdom is the application of both knowledge and understanding in a right way another aspect with regard to this truth takes place for us in Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 through 11 this is one of the first pictures of the judgment seat of Christ that we have visually in the scripture, dealing with fire. You have Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. They were priests. They were called out. They were anointed and appointed for the service of the Lord. The scripture says that they offered strange fire before the Lord. I have commentators that have gone back and said, well, they, they offered strange incense or this or that, and it's wrong. The Scripture clearly, plainly states 
that they offered strange fire before the Lord. What did the Lord do? It says fire came out from the presence of the Lord. It consumed them where they stood. Moses came, saw what had happened, called upon men to take their garments and take these corpses where? Outside of the camp, which is a picture of outer darkness and Gehenna. Not only that, but Aaron was forbidden to mourn for the death of his sons. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Do you know why? Scripture says the anointing of the Lord was upon him to do God's work. Do you know that in the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, that those who are participating in the marriage supper and those who make up the bride of Christ will not mourn for those who are weeping and gnashing their teeth outside in outer darkness in Gehenna? They will be forbidden. Why? Because this is a great and glorious and happy day for the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be no mourning and no sorrow in that great occasion. Do you know why the Lord killed these two men? They were supposed to take the fire from the altar of sacrifice, from the brazen altar. That fire was not lit by man. That fire came down from heaven. And there's numerous portions of Scripture that identify fire coming down from heaven to consume an offering. It was a holy fire. And Nadab and Abihu decided to offer whatever fire was convenient for them at the time to burn holy incense. Where am I going with this? The Lord killed them because they tried to combine what was holy with what was common. There's going to be a lot of ministers, a lot of teachers, and a lot of church leaders that will suffer the same fate as Nadab and Abihu. Because they have sought to combine the common wisdom and philosophies of this age with the holy wisdom that comes from God's word and passing it off as something that we should not only accept, but that we should live by. We need to be careful with what it is that we're taking in as a guide to how we ought to live and how we ought to approach God. James tells us the difference between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. Wisdom that is from above, according to James 3, verse 17, is first off, pure. It's then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown from this wisdom in peace and them that make peace. But the knowledge that comes from this age puffeth up, and it is contrary to the seven things that are listed in this verse. By the way, seven again is that number of divine spiritual perfection or completion. It is the opposite of these things. In leaving you, was such a harsh message. And there are numerous portions of Scripture that we could go into. Just in a matter of a few hours, the outline that I had, even without my notes, was growing past ten pages. The Lord has a lot to say about this subject. And I think before we have to stand before Him, we might ought to consider what He has to say about walking in wisdom. Because when we go back and we look in Romans 1... The term that's used there, um, uh, without excuse, literally means without defense. You know, there was two servants that the Lord mentioned. The servant that knew his master's will and chose not to do it, and and the servant that did not know his master's will and didn't do it. 
Which one got off without chastisement? Neither one of them. The servant that knew his master's will and refused to do it in rebellion received many stripes. The servant who did not know and did not do his master's will received few stripes. Folks, ignorance will not be an acceptable excuse in that day. Because every resource that we need to come to a mature understanding of the Lord and to be able to walk in wisdom in an age without it has been provided to us. Whether or not we accept those resources and we accept that counsel solely rests upon our shoulders. And whether or not we take it up or let it lay is what we'll be giving an account for in that day and what we've done afterwards. I pray, I would beg you in this point to walk in all true and godly wisdom with what time we all have left together and redeem an accounting term. Redeem the time that we have left while we are here. Whether we go on to sleep in the Lord or whether he comes to take us in the air. What time we have left is incredibly valuable. Redeem it in all godly wisdom. Thank you again for having us. And I really appreciate getting to be with you. You know, I wish I could have a good message that, like so many, that just make you want to jump up and down and make your socks roll up and down. Mine are down, but it's just because they're a little saggy at the moment. But it would be my earnest desire for those who are the righteous servants of God to hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And that would be my desire for you, but there's only one way to accomplish it. And that choice is yours. And I hope you make the right choice. Thank you, Bob.